Okay, so good morning, everyone. Good morning up the top. Um, okay, so we're continuing our study of Acts, and uh, we'll come to Act 7 uh, this morning. And we're going to have a, a time of communion at the end of this uh, time, uh, going through God's Word. So in our court case this morning, the defendant, Stephen, has been charged with the following. Speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and God, and speaking against the temple and the law. That's what we heard in chapter 6, basically, from his accusers. So when the high priest asked Stephen in our passage this morning, are these charges true? That's Stephen's cue to respond as he launches into his speech about Israel's relationship with God. And that's what you and me will read and hear this morning. But as Nathan's already kind of alluded to, there's something unusual about Stephen's trial, like any other trial. Uh, and he's the one, because he's the one that's presenting the case against the court. And he shows from his brief snapshot of Old Testament history that we're going to be looking at, that Jews had constantly rejected God's message and his prophets, and that the people gathered now in his hearing had rejected the Messiah, God's son, Jesus. So we're going to hear in Stephen's case against the court about his three key witnesses, about his solid rock defense, and his sentence and remarks. That's the three things we're going to be hearing about this morning. So let's pray before we come to God's word. Our faithful God, we, th we thank you, Lord, that you are our shalom, our peace. That through Christ we can know the peace of Christ in our hearts that passes all understanding. Father, that we can know you through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross. That we can gather here this morning. We would dare to gather in your name solely because of Christ alone. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would take these feeble words, take your word, which is all powerful. For you promise it will not come back void, Lord. Use your word as you will. And you send in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, there's a guy who comments on the Bible called Matthew Henry. You might have heard some of the other lads mention him along the way. And he helpfully, um, sort of, as he started Acts 7, he, he just says, it's just one sentence, he begins his defense, Stephen, he begins his defense, and it is long. I think, thanks, thanks, Matthew. So it is, it's long. I mean, it's not really. When you read it through, you can read it probably in about eight minutes. That's not long. You spend more time watching Beer Goff, you know. So we're gonna, I'm, I am going to pause at certain points. So I hope it doesn't spoil the floor too much, but I'm going to pause at certain points in Stephen's speech, just so we can have a couple of thoughts along the way as to what he's touched on uh, with his original hearers. So we're going to read, first of all, Acts 7 and the first 16 verses. Acts 7, 1 to 16. And it says this, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. 
So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. And they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Let's pause there. So Stephen calls on three key witnesses. We're going to hear about Moses in a, little, uh, in a couple of minutes, maybe. But Abraham and Joseph is his first witness, two witnesses, to give evidence about the first charge that was against him that we read in chapter 6 last week. Speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and God. And Abraham, if you like, is, is there as a picture of the everlasting covenant between God and his people. And it's a, it's, he's a forerunner of Jesus. So that's what we've got to keep in the back of our minds all the time, the point of all of this. So God had called Abraham from Mesopotamia and promised Canaan to him and his descendants. And remember, he didn't have any land or any children, we're told, in that passage. Abraham himself wasn't even given possession of the promised land, and not even the length of a foot, not even a, a square foot. Was, um, and that was shown that God was working even when a temple didn't exist. That was the point Stephen was making to his hearers. God was working even when a temple didn't exist. And Stephen strikes home the point that God revealed himself outside the Holy Land. This wasn't in Jerusalem. And how he promised a place of true worship to come. And this sparked off in my head um, a conversation that Jesus had uh, with a woman uh, at the well that we read about in uh, John's Gospel. In John uh, chapter 4, 19 and 26, after Jesus had, um, had a conversation and asked for a, some water from this woman, he basically told her everything there was to know about him. And she says this, which is probably understatement of the year. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you were a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time has come, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus was explained to that woman that Jerusalem, the temple, the mountain, whatever, they were just shadows of what uh, God's true worshippers were going to be, where, where they were going to worship. So we'll move on. We then heard about Joseph in that passage, back in Acts. And this speaks, if you want a, a word, of God's grace. We see in Joseph's story, God's grace. If you know the story of Joseph, or you maybe go and look that up later. And Stephen continues that theme of Israel's rejection of God's chosen leaders, which resulted in the re rejection of Jesus. So Joseph, we're told, God was with him. Um, God's presence was with Joseph in Egypt. shows that God can bless those outside the promised land, and therefore a physical temple isn't crucial for saving purposes. So this is the point he was getting across to them. God, by his sovereign will and grace, can save anyone he chooses at any time in any place. It doesn't need to be a church building like this. It doesn't need to be a church service. It can be anywhere. And I'm sure, even looking around, I'm prompted that there's people who can testify to that. And I can testify to that as it happens. So it doesn't need to be a church building or service or anywhere like that. It can be anywhere. Stephen touches on a sore spot when he goes on about the patriarchs because the Sanhedrin, this court that he was standing in front of, that idolized, if you like, the patriarchs. And these are Joseph's brothers that he's talking about, the 12, um, the 11 brothers. But this is what he says. They were, they were jealous of him. They sold him as a slave to Egypt. And then there was a famine. There was a famine. But this heathen country, Egypt, had plenty to spare and share, while the fathers couldn't find food to their shame. And that's kind of like touching on a sore spot with the Sanhedrin. We think, well, we don't really dwell on that much. But it was a shame upon the patriarchs. But God was gracious with these people. He provided a food bank. He provided shelter through the brother they'd rejected earlier. Grace. Grace is the picture that we're given in Joseph's story. Undeserved favor. That's what grace is. And God showed up the brothers' bad attitude by turning their victim, Joseph, into the victor, showing grace to his brothers. And in that last bit about Joseph, just before we move on, it shows that Israel's presence was in Egypt. It mentions it for 400 years. Israel was present in a heathen country for 400 years, and it grew. It actually grew. Um, so it showed that the Lord is with his people even when they're not in the promised land. Let's pick up Stephen's speech again from verse 17. As the time drew near to God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. 
Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you were brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare, look, dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Let's pause there again. So this is where Stephen was really horning in now on his, the accusations and the accusers because he was now getting to think about this Moses that they were leveling at him as the accusation. Okay? So if, if there was a if there was a, 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 a phrase, you've got that picture of Moses, uh, it's deliverance versus unbelief. That's kind of like the thoughts that are running through this. So the time had come for God to fulfill his, per his promise to Abraham, that promise that we heard about at, at the start. And it gives a clear picture of God's faithfulness and his sovereignty, despite the failures of all of his people, which Nathan alluded to this morning in the songs. And the world events going on around at that time. God was working out his plan and his purposes. Israel had grown from the original 75 who came to Egypt in Joseph's time into quite a sizable nation. But they were reduced to slavery. 
and they were forced to throw out the newborn babies. So that's what we've heard. And you and me might look at events around the world and wonder, what's, what's going on? What's going on in the world? I hear that so much at work, but what's going on in the world? I know somebody at work who's um, just switched off the news. She hasn't watched the news for about two years now, and we're talking over lunch about it. It just distresses us so much. And that might be you. I don't know this morning. But whether it is or isn't, when we're faced with confusing circumstances, we can't figure out the, these big things that's going on. Remember this. There's four things to remember. God is in control. We see it enough here, but do we actually know that? God is in control. The children have been learning that the last few months. We, say, we saw that phrase that was up on the, the, um, the wall. No surprises. There's no surprises to God. He is sovereign. He knows all things. He's in control of all things. The second thing is the world, this world is not all there is. We sometimes live with it and cling to it. However good the things are that we cling to, as if this is it. This is it. Are you living like that this morning? Are you living like that this morning? The third thing is God is just, and he will make all things right, punishing the wicked and rewarding the faithful. And the final thing he wants to remind us of is, in the meantime, God in his sovereign wisdom and power wants to use people like you and me, like he used Joseph and Moses and Stephen. These blokes, these women that we read about in the Bible, they're not Marvel comic superheroes. They're just ordinary people that God used in an extraordinary way. Never put them on a pedestal. It's, it's tempting to do it because you think, oh, the heroes of the Bible. They're not heroes. They would say that themselves if they stood here. And when we say them in glory, they'd probably say, no, I blew it. Time and time again. But God is good. And he calls us all to be a witness to the world where he places us. So getting back to Stephen. So Stephen then preaches Christ to the Sanhedrin through prophecy language, which they were well up on. Don't, don't forget that point. The Sanhedrin were well up on God's law. So he was talking in, in their language. You know, when you book something on bookman.com, say, we speak your language. He was speaking the Sanhedrin's language. So I broke, it, broke this down into the three parts just to help us. Um, so we've got, helpfully, it tells us in Scripture that it's, it's 40 years at a time. So we've got these three periods of 40 years uh, that were covered there. So, yeah, we're covered 120 years in a, in a few paragraphs there. So this is what I've called, like, Moses' the early years. So that's verses 17 to 22. So we hear about Moses' education. So after he, after he got rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, he, um, he got took back to Pharaoh's palace, and he was given that Egyptian education, which was high-level high education at that time, in a secular setting. So, again, the point is that God was accomplishing salvation in an unexpected way then, like he's done through Jesus of Nazareth. So this was Stephen's point to his hearers again. Then you've got Moses, the middle years. So that, that's verses 23 to 29. 23 to 29. And he just emphasizes, he picks out, there's all the things that happened in Moses' life, but he picks out this one uh, period of time, this single incident about when uh, Moses kills the Egyptian, thinking this is going to win favor with God's people, and then the subsequent conversation he had after that. 
And they said, who, who, made, who made you judge and rule over us? Why did he do that? Because, again, it illustrates Israel's constant rejection of its God-given leaders. Constant rejection of its God-given leaders. In the later years, so the third chunk of 40 years, in verses 30 to 43, we read about the encounter at the Vernon Bush. The Lord, um, holy ground, Moses was told, told. Take off them sandals, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. This is the same Moses who they rejected. This is what Stephen's point was again. The same Moses who you directed, who you said, who made you rule and judge over us? Who were they actually rejecting? But we read it there in Scripture, don't we? We read it that in verse 35, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you rule and judge? He was sent to be their rule and deliverer by who? God himself. They were rejecting God to the shame. They were rejecting God, not just Moses. And again, the Sanhedrin, pushing it aside, pushing it aside. We don't like to think about that. Our history. In verse 37, the Jews originally thought this prophet, this prophet that Moses spoke about, the thought at the time was, oh, it must be Joshua. He took over from Moses, so he's speaking about Joshua. In a sense, that word is the same as, as Jesus, the name of Jesus. God saves. But this is who he was actually talking about. Moses was prophesying about the coming Messiah when he said about that in verse 37. So what's Stephen doing? He's shown them the similarities between Moses and Christ, shown how both were God-sent deliverers and how Israel rejected the message of both of them. He was making that link. And Moses' presence with the Israelites, he compared with Christ's presence in the church. So these are the comparisons he's getting them to think about, or trying to get them to think about. And there was that little word there. It, I, I didn't get this till quite late on. May or may not be important, but it's, it's here. And it says in verse 38, he was in the assembly, that word, the assembly in the desert. And um, you know I like me great words. Don't understand them, but I like them. I like to see where these words come from. And that, that word, the assembly, is ecclesia. Ecclesia. I guess, well, that must be where the word ecclesiastical comes from. I didn't have time to look that bit up. But it means, this is the bit that grabbed me attention, the called out ones, the called out ones, so remember that. And this was also how the first century Christians described their own community or congregation. So Stephen's point was that the giving of the law through Moses to the Jews, the called out ones, was the sign of the covenant. So by obedience to that covenant, then they would continue to be God's covenant people. But because they disobeyed, which is the next verse, but our fathers refused to obey him. Verse 39. They rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. It's, it's, it's astounding when you read it, but there you go. It's there in God's word. Because they disappeared, they brought the covenant and forfeited their right to be the chosen people. Then you get the golden calf incident. You get that. You get Israel's continuing rejection of Moses' leadership. Moses goes up the mountain of Sinai. People are 
get a bit bored. They ask for a golden calf to be made. They have a rave, and then Moses comes down. We don't know what's become of him. And they succumb to the sinful idolatry. How quickly, how quickly we forget as people. God's holiness, God's laws. But here we are, it's in Scripture. Then from that idolatry the, to the occupation of the promised land. And then they began, we're told, again, in God's word, that they began worshipping heavenly bodies, the host of heaven. And you think, oh, well, that sounds right. It's not. They were worshipping the created as opposed to the creator. That's the big thing. And we say that all the time now. You know, however good nature is and however lovely mountains are and all that, the moon, the sun, we don't worship, we worship the creator if we know Christ this morning as, as Lord and Saviour. And God is our creator God. Because we can, we can get that and wash over us and we can come to worship the created rather than the creator. So Stephen invites the Jews, trailing off this bit, Stephen invites the Jews to draw their own conclusion. He's not pointing the finger as such yet. He was still trying to get them to see, like any preacher, getting the people to see. Stephen invites them to draw their own conclusion. If, if they rejected the prophet whom Moses spoke about, and it was proclaimed by the likes of Peter and now Stephen, who were the ones really guilty of blasphemy against Moses, was his point. Which brings us to uh, Stephen's solid rock defense. Let's read Acts 7, 44 to 50. Pick it up again. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Let's pause slightly. I had a recent conversation with somebody um, within the church, and what, what, the phrase that they used stuck in my head, and I thought, oh, write that down. Um, the, 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 we were talking about witnessing to people and you know how we sometimes get a little bit, so, I'm a Christian, don't hurt me. Get a bit apologetic and a bit, a bit, a bit different. And he, and he said we should be unapologetically Christian. And I agreed. I agreed with him. And um, we had that type of conversation. Now what Stephen, and again, Nathan brought this out, Stephen didn't really defend himself. You not see any defensive remarks personal towards Stephen. What he did give is his apology. Now our 21st century mind, when you hear that word, has a, a certain... Uh, link to that word and meaning that I think has changed over the years maybe but that wasn't him being sorry it wasn't being and regretting what he said which is kind of like what we we use it now so being um, again the Greek word apologia apologia a legal or formal defense that's what it actually means it's a legal or formal defense 
So an apologetic Christian, that's what Stephen was in the true sense of the word. He's a defender of the faith. Not in a sort of like, mm, defense. When you and me witness for Christ, we don't need to be on the defensive in that sense, the negative sense. It's, it's standing on the solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the, 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 the truth of God's word and scripture is what we're standing upon. So this is what Stephen shows us how to do it, if you like. So instead, we can simply share our faith. And I make it sound simple, don't I? It's not. I understand that in real life. It's not. I find it difficult. But let's take encouragement from Stephen this morning about how he can use us. Just people, ordinary people. So the tabernacle. It mentions the tabernacle in this bit. In this. So if you want uh, a phrase, again, something versus something, it's spirituality versus formalism, if you like, is what he's getting at here. So Stephen showed from Scripture the promise, the covenant to God's people, and the redemption had been in place before the temple was actually built. Although he, re he recognised the importance of the temple, he knew that it wasn't more important than God. That was the big difference that Stephen was trying to get across. Excuse me. That's the big difference he was trying to get across. So in verses 48 to 50, yeah, you get that scripture from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 that Stephen quotes. God isn't limited. He doesn't live only in a house of worship like Calvary Christian Fellowship. But wherever hearts of faith are open to receive him. And Solomon knew this when he prayed at the dedication of the temple in Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles 6, 18. He says this, But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built Solomon got it right there. So what was Israel's error? What was the Sanhedrin's error, that, the hearers of this speech? They were confining God to the temple. They were controlling them. They're putting in a box. God in a box. I just wonder, and I was challenged, can you and me be guilty of this at times? How big is your vision of God? How big is your vision of God? Do I try to limit them? to a certain day or days or a certain time in a specific building? What would I do if, if Calvary Christian's Fellowship's building got flattened to rubble tomorrow morning? I'm just seeing all the trustees go. <laughs> How would I react? How would I react? How did I react? This is a question you might want to ask yourself. How did I react during the lockdown, the proper lockdown, as I call it? when I couldn't be in this building with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It felt a bit weird, if I'm honest. It just, hang on, whoa, something's changed here. We're not in that building anymore. But it's not about this building. This is just a place we gather. And we found a way through that. But it, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about and challenge yourself with. So what ways do you and me try to keep God under control through either tradition because Calvary Christian Fellowship's got traditions. Don't be under any illusion. A building, even a doctrine, can sometimes, if not tread right, can limit God, if you like. You've got to be careful. You have got to be careful. God wants to live in us. We're told in Scripture, aren't we? 
that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Our body, if you like, is, a temp is the temple where God is living, if, if we know him as Lord and as Savior in our hearts and lives today. Is he living in you? So thinking about the tabernacle, have you ever encountered God in an unusual or even an impure place? For some, this might have been in a football stadium at some kind of evangelistic event. Maybe it's like a Billy Graham event back in the day at Roker Park or whatever. For others, it might have been a beach mission on a beach. Or even such an impure place as a taxi. Who knows where God's going to turn up? Who knows where God's going to turn up? Ah, he discovered me. I didn't discover him. He discovered me at Newcastle City Hall. I used to go out to gigs there, but I you know, didn't give God two thoughts. But he discovered me at Newcastle City Hall. Um, yeah. Amazing. Amazing grace. So the tabernacle of the temple, the obvious point here, is they weren't meant to last forever. They weren't meant to last forever. So whether it was a tent that moved about with the people, whether it was a temple that was placed in all its wonder and um, majesty, they weren't meant to last forever. The more to point to something or someone, to be more precise, far greater to come. So Stephen's point wasn't to make such a big deal about the temple. God cannot be contained in or confined to any earthly temple. Paul says later in Acts 17, 24-25 this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Stephen's speech mentions many places outside of the temple in Israel where people encountered God in a really powerful way. So finally, we'll come on to his sentence and remarks. Where did I get that phrase from? So I read recently in a newspaper, uh, back in the last month, um, about Crown Court's sentence and remarks to be broadcast for the first time. You might have read it. And so this means news channels allowed to air judges' sentence and remarks from the Crown Court following a recent change in the law. And these sentence and remarks can be filmed for TV and made available online. And the first case um, that was actually televised in the UK was the sentencing of one Ben Oliver at the Old Bailey expected to be the first broadcasted case. Why it caught me, mind, why it caught me eye, I don't know. Um, I, I did actually look it up, and, and this is a real case. And he was actually accused of murdering his grandfather. You're not going to believe this, but it's 100% true, called David Oliver. So there you go. But it allows the public to see and hear judges explain the reasoning behind the sentences. That's what it's been, and given a better understanding of how these decisions are raised. So just in case the penny hadn't finally dropped for the Sanhedrin, Stephen sets things out for them in no uncertain terms. It's not just a legal defense. It's a bold proclamation of the truth of God. You, you get a feel that at this point, things were getting a bit agitated, and Stephen, Stephen saw his time was coming short. So these are Stephen's sentencing remarks. He says this, You stiff-necked people, verse 51, 
you stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. So like I say, Stephen finally turns the spotlight on the Sanhedrin. The tables have turned now. The accused becomes the accuser. Basically, he's saying, you're anti-God. You're anti-God. Just like your fathers. The Sanhedrin's fathers are the people who got rescued. The called out ones, if you remember. So it was a direct attack, attack on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And when you, when you read this, first, first of all, it seems pretty harsh when you first read that, them, these sort of words. But Luke's already told us in the previous chapter, in, in 6 verse 5, and reminds us, he's going to remind us in next week's passage, that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's being led by the Holy Spirit here, who knows the hearts of Stephen's listeners to make this accusation. You're just like your fathers. Where have I heard a phrase like that? It got us thinking about the importance in all seriousness of parental influence. How many times have you heard a similar phrase? You're just like your dad or whoever. So I'm going to stick with that. Calling all dads, hear this. Don't underestimate the influence you have on your children. Good and bad. They take notice of what excites you and what doesn't. They take notice of what's important to you and what isn't. And what you make time for and what you don't. Stephen responded to the charges by turning them on his accusers. They were the ones who were really disobeying God because they rejected these appointed leaders. The Sanhedrin couldn't escape the fact that they, not Stephen, were guilty of blasphemy against God, Moses, and the worship and the laws, according to the scriptures. They could run, but they couldn't hide. He used Old Testament language. Again, they were so familiar with this. Stiff-necked, which is about stubbornness. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. So that's about spiritual circumcision. They had the outwardly sign of circumcision. Well, they obeyed that. Well, oh, yeah, eighth day, yep. We'll do, we'll do that, but not inwardly. They weren't circumcised in their heart and hearing and resisting the Holy Spirit. So that's sin against the Holy Spirit, sin against God. And, I mean, you read about that again. They've probably skipped over this bit of Israel's history. In Isaiah 63, 10, it says this, Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Sometimes you and me might need to be provocative in proclaiming the truth to people. And then we come to the righteous one that's mentioned. We'll come to the righteous one. Stephen took us through. He 
takes his listeners through on a journey through the Old Testament that he, he never actually completes. And he barely even touches on the cross. And he doesn't even mention Jesus by name. It's not exactly the ABC of evangelism when we read it. In Mark 13, to nine, uh, 13 and 9 and 11, it says this. Jesus said this. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to men. The gospel must be first preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you who is speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Stephen's defense is a powerful example of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit would give his people the words to speak when they were dragged in front of the persecutors. And I'm sure them words were going about Stephen's mind, that promise. So when the high priest asked at the start of our passage, are these charges true? We knew, didn't we? It was a mock trial, just like Jesus trial before Pilate and the rest. The sentence was already determined. The Sanhedrin were just going to go th they were just going through the motions, basically. And looking ahead to next week's passage, Stephen was a dead man preaching. The Apostle Peter says in his first letter this, as we draw to a close. 1 Peter 3, 15-18 says this. Actually, I'll pick it up in 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If it is better, it's, it, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Stephen, Stephen was given the Sanhedrin the reason for the hope that was in him. Stephen proclaimed this unfolding of God's covenant promises and the fact that God was always there and always will be. That was prayed this morning in some shape or form, that God is always with us in the good and the bad. Stephen might have been responsible, we heard last week, for supervising food distribution to the needy in the early church, but he clearly didn't neglect God's word in favor of the practical stuff. So what do we take away from this, very briefly? The importance of knowing God's word to be used at his appointed time. Being ready to give a reason for the hope you have in Christ. We've been singing about it this morning, the hope we have in Christ, in season and out of season. Another thing you might draw from it is striving for excellence in small tasks can be preparing us. God might be preparing you for greater responsibilities. So it could be serving at tables. It could be serving tea and coffee after the service. It could be helping at the kids' youth clubs, etc. <coughs> Whatever God's using for you at this moment, it could be like a boot camp for something far greater that he's got prepared for you. 
And I guess the third thing would be having a love for and a real understanding of God and his word always leads to a practical and a compassionate action towards other people. If you've got what God's word dwelling in you, then you can't help yourself in one sense to be shown his love to others. And that's the right way around. Not doing that to earn and try and win people through that. It's, it's because you love God and because you love his word that you do these things. Stephen had his priorities right, have you and me? I guess this is a simple question. So, as we're finished, as we're going to com- communion, you and me come to remember the goal and the fulfillment of all of these covenant promises that Stephen's been reminding these hearers of this morning. The righteous one, the Messiah, he was and is and always will be the key to this covenant. He's the key to all of this. He's the meaning of the Jews' history as the people of God. This Jesus whom they are crucified, but had risen from the dead. That's, he's the key. And that thread runs all the way through what Stephen was uh, sharing about. So will you humbly remember this Jesus, the righteous one, through this simple but sacred act of communion? Let's not forget that. This holy ground that we stand on. Or will you continue to refuse him in pride? Proverbs 29, 23 says this, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honour. Let's pray. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Now, Father, I thank you that you've preserved the evidence of your word all of this time so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that you're our deliverer, our king, and that your death on the cross, your blood shed for our sin, and your resurrection given us a new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That is That is what we revel in, Lord, this morning, as your people. Help us never to forget that and help us to remember that in this simple service now. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you give us the words to speak in our hour of need. Help us to remember Stephen's speech in times of challenge, possibly even persecution in one way or another. That might still be to come, great or small in our workplaces, in our places of education, in our neighbourhoods, wherever you've placed us, Lord, whatever our circumstance, help us to remember that you give us your words, Holy Spirit. Help us to look beyond these four walls of this building and our Calvary Christian Fellowship traditions, Lord. Help us to hear your call and go where you are leading us as your people and share the good news with those who need to hear it. And I pray this all in Jesus' name for his glory alone.